Well, hello, hello, hello. How nice to meet you in person, finally. Well, Abby, it's great to meet you finally, too. Can I call you Bob? Is that all right? Oh, yes. Whatever you want to. Yeah. And how would you like me to address you? Abby is great. Okay, good. It's really nice to meet you, by the way. I'm just like a huge fan. Hi, all. I'm Abigail Disney, and welcome to All Ears. In recent months, I've been on the road with my new documentary, The American Dream and Other Fairy Tales. In the film, I tell the stories of some Disney workers to show how the American dream has become a nightmare for so many. Of course, the problem is not just with Disney. Today, nearly half of all American workers are struggling to make ends meet. That's why, in this season of All Years, I'll be taking a deep dive into some of the big questions raised in the film with folks who are doing the most Disney thing possible, using their imaginations. In this case, to rethink modern American capitalism. Because if we don't reimagine how it all works and fix it, we're going to be in big trouble. Well, I know you have a hard out, so we should get straight to it, because I have lots and lots and lots of things to ask you. Oh, good. Terrific. Okay, so Robert Reich has spent a lifetime writing, teaching, talking, practically begging us to pay attention to the subject of inequality in America. He has served in multiple capacities across multiple presidential administrations. These days, though, he's best known for being, as the New York Times cheekily called him, a multi-platform gadfly. Indeed, he's found ways to reach millions through his 18 books, countless articles and policy papers, documentaries, social media posts, TikTok videos, and daily Substack missives, not to mention his eye-opening animations made at his production company called Inequality Media. Are you tired? I am so tired from reading that list. I think he's one of the most effective communicators on the ways the economy and our political system clash and intertwine, most often to the tremendous disadvantage of the less fortunate. He is also a wildly popular professor of public policy at UC Berkeley and a senior fellow at the Blum Center for Developing Economies. Welcome. I'm so delighted to talk with you because if ever there were anyone who could help us think through what's happened to capitalism and reimagine a better future, it's you. Well, Abby, thank you. Thank you for inviting me, and thank you for the work that you continue to do. Well, we all need to fight with everything we got, right? Because this is big. Absolutely. So let me start with this personal question. It seems obvious that people should care about fairness and equality, but most people don't really do the work of fairness and equality. So what makes you different? Why do you do this work? What brought you to it? Oh, I suppose... I get a little bit embarrassed doing too much personal introspection, but I, I've always been very short for my age and grew up as a kid getting you know bullied as most children do, but I was particularly bullied because of my, my short stature. And I suppose that made me, uh, as I think back on it, particularly concerned about the people who are being bullied in our society, people who don't have very much in terms of assets or resources, people who whose bosses treat them as if they don't even exist or are not important, people who, who really are caught in a system that is rigged against them in so many ways. So there's a lot of bullying in society, and I, I guess that must be connected some way to my own experiences. 
You know, I read something that one of the people who helped you out when you were being bullied was Michael Schwerner. Is that true? Yes. The technique I used finally to keep the bullies at bay was to ask some older boys, one or two, to just become my protectors. I kind of had a little protection racket going on when I was a young kid. Nice. And one of them was Michael Schwerner, who I got to know a little bit because his family had a a cabin in the Adirondack Mountains near where my grandmother had a cabin. And I spent time with her and I got to know him a little bit. And of course, uh, in 1964, the summer of 1964, he was registering voters in Mississippi as a freedom writer when he, along with two other civil rights workers, were brutally murdered. I was just entering college and I, and I felt that the person who was trying to keep the bullies away from me, had succumbed to the real bullies Mm. in society, the people who were trying to keep a system of racial repression, subjugation, really a, a form of slavery, still in place. And that as I look back on it, I, I don't think I was fully aware of it at the time, but I think that, that his murder catapulted me into activism. I can see how it would do that. I mean, one of the things that frustrates me when we talk about, you know, fairness and the overuse and, and misuse of strength and power is we find ourselves in this zone of talking about how people should be or shouldn't be or how things should be arranged. And I, I sometimes feel dismissed really easily when I'm in that zone because, you know, we're talking about business, we're talking about economy and science, and those things about fairness are just idealism. I mean, how do you push back on that? How do you fight for the realness of, of this thing that can often be sort of dismissed as almost childlike idealism? I agree with you. I, I have exactly the same and run into the same issues you do. When I start talking about morality or fairness, I get from people who are in positions of power and wealth, I get very often a kind of skepticism back. But I don't think we should accept, those of us who are concerned about morality in the economy, accept the notion that morality is completely divorced from the economy. It is central to the economy. You can't really talk about the economy without talking about morality. An amoral or immoral economy self-destructs inevitably. Yes. Yes, exactly. You and I are both old enough to have watched this expression, greed is good, become something that wasn't outrageous or to be repudiated. I mean, we watched that happen. There was a shift in policy, of course, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that changed the way our economy worked. But maybe just as important, norms shifted, belief systems shifted. How would you describe that? Well, I I think that the big U-turn occurred in the late 70s and 1980s, and I think it happened largely because finance took over the economy. Wall Street took over the economy. Um, It started rather innocently with a few corporate raiders, we used to call them, now they're private equity managers, who took over companies with hostile takeovers. Those companies could have, according to the takeover artists, done much better by their shareholders 
If they fired more workers, abandoned their communities, treated workers worse, lowered pay, outsourced abroad, did all sorts of things that ultimately they did do because as CEOs became more and more vulnerable to these takeover artists, these CEOs discovered that they really had no choice but to maximize shareholder returns by severing all of the other moral commitments that corporations had with their workers, with their communities, with the nation as a whole, uh, with anybody else other than shareholders. And that really took root under President Reagan, particularly once he said to companies, in effect, go ahead, bust unions, go ahead, make as much money as you could or can. That notion that greed is good took root in the Reagan administration at a time when a lot of the nation was beginning to get disillusioned with the economy. Things were not doing as well as they were before. Uh, A lot of people were losing their jobs. We had double-digit inflation in the 1970s going into a very deep recession uh, starting in the 1980s. And I think that it was that combination that led the way to this takeover of the economy by those who felt that supply-side economics, that is, if you reduce the taxes on people at the top, you make them even wealthier, everything will trickle down somehow to everybody else. Well, it was a lie from the beginning. It was a complete hoax from the start. But it was one of the lies, one of the methods that those who were gaining a great deal of wealth in the economy began to use to justify their wealth. And of course, then it was a vicious cycle. It snowballed, in effect. Would you say that supply-side economics, the the trickle-down narrative, is synonymous with neoliberalism? Are they one and the same, or are they different things? Well, I think they're certainly overlapping. I don't know exactly what neoliberalism is in the sense that I certainly know that globalization, privatization of what had been public resources, the changing of our political economy and all of the rules of our political economy toward making the rich even richer, allowing huge amounts of campaign contributions to rig the system. Well, that all, to me, is part of neoliberalism, and it's part of what has happened certainly over the last 40 years. It's also one of the reasons that the typical worker in the United States has not seen, adjusted for inflation, any real increase in their wages while people at the top have done extraordinarily well. In fact, have never done as well in history. Uh, The ratio of CEO pay to the pay of the typical worker went from about 20 to 1 in the 1960s, when I began looking at these kinds of things, to now 320 to 1 in large companies, certainly. And you, you get in almost every facet of American life this widening gap. Young people I teach today, Abby, they see a world in which there's a shrinking middle class And they worry. Uh, Obviously, they worry. They're not only worried about economics. They're also worried about, you know, global climate change. They're worried about many things. But they look at the economic picture and they see, look, there are huge gains to be made at the top. If they become investment bankers or they go into 
hedge funds or they go into private equity or management consulting. But if they follow their hearts into, say, the arts or into social work or into whatever else their hearts tell them they want to do, they may face, they fear poverty or the possibility of poverty. And of course, that means you have even more talent going into occupations where they can do the smallest good and not going to places uh, where they can do huge good. You know, when you talk about companies chasing profits the way that they have, is this pushback saying, well, isn't that what they're supposed to do? You know, I mean, chasing profits is just the whole point of an economy. But if a company doesn't have a higher purpose than that, then the economy doesn't have a higher purpose than that. And if the economy doesn't have a higher purpose than that, then there really is no reason to pay a teacher or an artist or a social worker anything at all, really, because they're not generating revenues. So the question is, like, does a corporation have a higher purpose? Should the economy have a higher purpose? What is that? What does that mean? It's a very good and fundamental question. I've basically given up on the notion of corporate social responsibility. I, I think it's used as a as a kind of a public relations gimmick more than anything else. But I really don't want companies to to pollute our politics. I tell CEOs and anybody else who will listen, if you really want to behave in a responsible way, if you really believe in social responsibility, then stop making campaign contributions, and join the movement to get big money out of politics. I'm going to come back to big money and politics in a second, but let's talk for a second about corporate profits right now. I mean, corporations have always been, for the most part, profitable. What's going on right now that's different? Well, over the last two and a half years, corporations have racked up the the largest profits we've seen certainly in the last 40 years. And the data are a little bit hard to compare apples and oranges before that time. But certainly we know that over the last 40 years, corporations have become more profitable, but we've never seen anything like the last few years. And these days, particularly when people are paying through the nose for energy, for fuel, for gas at the gas pumps, we know that those corporate profits are not are not natural. They, they are driving much of the inflation we now are experiencing. And as a result, there's almost a direct transfer of wealth, if you will, from the average person to the oil companies, to the big food processors, to others monopolizing America. The core reason that American companies have become so profitable is because of the monopolization that they are doing of the economy overall. They are taking over industries. And the government has not pushed back against this. I think partly because uh, the government has been bought off. So where's this money going exactly? I mean, I presume it's coming into the companies in the form of cash. Then where does the cash go? Well, the cash does not go into new investment for the most part. It would be one thing if the companies were becoming more productive and helping the economy function in some way we could talk about ethically. It would be one thing if they were going into wages. They're not going into wages. No, the profits are going into stock buybacks, by and large. Mm -hmm. And what that means is a company is using its profitability to... In buying back its own stock, its own shares of stock, 
increasing the value of the remaining shares of stock. In other words, this is a way of making investors even wealthier. Now, I remember back, you I'm sure you remember, Abby, under the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, where George W. had the idea that everybody was in the stock market or everybody could be in the stock market and that everybody could rise together. Well, that's simply wrong. Right. 82% of the entire value of the stock market is owned by the richest 10% of Americans. And that really provides context for understanding that when all of this money goes into the stock market to raise the value of stocks, it is not the average person who is benefiting. It is people at the top. The people who are paying through the nose for groceries, for example, are average Americans or poor Americans. That's where you get the transfer of wealth upward. Well, the corollary to that is that if a share price is high, we can't necessarily assume that means the company is more valuable. Right. A company being more valuable doesn't have any necessary connection to the average person. I think we're also and we've got ourselves very, very confused between the real economy in which people live every day, the kitchen table economy and this financial economy. The financial economy doesn't have much to do with how most people live, what most people want, uh, what they can do with their lives. The financial economy exists uh, at a level that is not real for most people. So in the 50s and 60s, when a corporation was setting its budget for the year, what percent do you think of, of its expenses went to labor costs? In the 50s and 60s, about 75% of a company's expenses went to labor in terms of paying wages. Today, it's closer to 65%, but it's still fairly large. And most companies, therefore, when they want to increase profits, the first place they look is their labor costs, their payrolls. That's why we see so many efforts to cut wages. Elon Musk goes into Twitter. The first thing he does is he lays off half of the employees. The first thing most CEOs do when they take over a company is to look for ways of getting machines to replace workers or outsourcing the work abroad to lower wage workers around the world or even to states that have so-called right-to-work statutes, which is a, I mean, it's a hilarious phrase because these states make it very difficult to form unions. That's what the CEO today is doing, most of all in terms of trying to increase profits. It's cutting labor costs. Or by forcing more productivity out of the laborers that you already have, right? Absolutely. There are a million ways they're doing this, and not just in terms of the amount of money that's on the check every week. That's right. And instead of understanding that your workers are your most valuable asset. The workers at the front line are the ones who know what's wrong, what's not doing well, what could be improved. It's the frontline workers who know the most. They're your most important human capital. They're your assets. But on the accounting, the kind of conventional accounting measures that the corporations use, the workers are not considered assets to be nurtured or developed or, or, or trained. Uh, they're considered costs to be cut. So in terms of that 65% that goes to labor, what goes to financial related costs now? Because that really is one of the big changes since Wall Street took over. The most important thing to understand is that the trend 
is toward more and more of what comes into a company, particularly in terms of profit margins. More and more of it is going into finance. And that's why you get these extraordinary amounts of money going to people who go into finance, uh, whether, again, it's hedge fund managers or private equity managers or it's, uh, it's traders. The financial sector of the 1960s, when I began looking at all of this in some detail, was a fairly boring place. It was not a place where a lot of money was made. In fact, Wall Street was the handmaiden of industry. Wall Street existed to help industry. Now, basically, the private sector is the handmaiden of Wall Street, handmaiden of finance. Finance runs the show. So when we're talking about inflation, I mean, how bad is it right now? And so many people are pointing at wages as the reason for inflation. What, what is really driving inflation right now? Wages are not driving inflation because wage gains have been less than price increases. So this whole notion of wage price inflation that you hear coming from Jerome Powell, the chair of the Fed and others, is absurd. It doesn't exist. What we really have today is corporate profit price inflation. And that is the major domestic source of inflation. What corporations are doing to increase their profits, their net profits, their profits over their costs, using inflation as an excuse, as a cover to get away with doing this. So what's a windfall tax? I've been hearing you talk about that. What is a windfall tax? And what is the likelihood of something like that happening in this country? What it is essentially, Abby, is a, an attempt to tax these gains that are exploitative, that have nothing to do with either costs or uh, what a corporation should normally register as profits. What you do, very simply, is you take a a bunch of years, it doesn't matter what the years are, but you take a, a set of years, let's say, for example, 2005 to 2015, you look at the typical profits of a corporation during that period of time, and then that's your baseline. And you say, all right, over the last two years, during this period of extraordinary profitability, leading to and contributing to inflation, well, anything above that baseline, we're going to tax maybe 25% of it or 50% of it or more. This is what European countries are doing with oil companies. It's what even the conservative government in Britain has done with the oil companies. And there's no reason we shouldn't be doing it, at least, at least with oil companies. It seems to me that margins are a pretty easy thing to define. And when they rise during an inflationary period, that constitutes gouging. I mean, it should be defined as gouging because you're hitting people when they're most vulnerable. Of course you are. And my other worry there is that the Federal Reserve Board, by raising interest rates and bringing on the likelihood of recession, is hurting people who are the most vulnerable. Well, and and when you watch the news at night or, you know, read the front page of the newspaper, pretty much the only thing that we hear about in terms of addressing inflation or unemployment has to go up to seven and a half percent or six million more jobs lost for inflation to start coming down. It seems to me that we're captive to some received wisdom. Absolutely. Why is inflation still so tied to interest rates and unemployment when unemployment 
is a word for suffering? Well, I think that you asked a terribly important question, and it really goes to how Americans have come to understand economics. The media is very important. Now, some of the media, like Fox News, is obviously captive to the Republican Party, but even the major media, either explicitly, wittingly, or unwittingly captive to major corporations and financial centers uh, in New York. And I find myself almost every day uh, angry, depressed, sort of outraged, because these old ways of seeing the economy, which maybe had some basis in reality uh, 40 or 50 years ago, have none today. I mean, they, they, are, they are basically fictional views. They leave out the most important aspects of the economy, particularly who wins, who loses, why the rich are getting richer, why people who are in the middle class are feeling squeezed, why the poor are in more desperate straits than ever before, why why are these issues marginalized when they're at the center of the economy? And ultimately, as we see more every day, at the center of our political and social stability, too. I mean, these things are completely connected. How did the Fed and corporations, how did they get so powerful? I mean, they've always been powerful. But what changed in the last 50 years to give them what feels like the final say-so? Well, I think uh, one thing that changed is that corporations have become steadily more powerful, both as monopolists in terms of their markets, uh, but also as political actors, polluting our politics with very, very large campaign contributions. And both of those, one in the private sector and the other in our public sector, have led to the almost immobilization of many people because they don't know what's happening. There's deep cynicism. At the same time, that cynicism is easily exploited. And we saw Donald Trump and many Republicans, and in fact, the entire Republican Party come along and exploit that cynicism by saying to people effectively, you can't trust anybody. The game is rigged against you. Well, it is rigged against you. But then they say the way to unrig it is to target Muslims or to target black people or or people of color generally or to put up walls around America. I mean, they come up with these highly charged, hateful, bigoted answers to a legitimate question. And that legitimate question is, how did the economy become so rigged and what can we do to unrig it? It became rigged because big corporations and very rich people got huge political power through their campaign contributions. How to unrig it? Well, one way to unrig it is to get big money out of politics. There are ways of doing it, even though the Supreme Court has decreed that money is a form of free speech. Well, I think it's really a testament, sadly, to the failure of the Democratic Party as well to make working people a part of its coalition. The Democratic Party has essentially abandoned the working class over the past 40 years, leaving the Republican Party to fill the void. And of course, the Republican Party, because its backers are so rich, so powerful, so corporate, the Republican Party will step into the void rhetorically and exploit people's angers and fears and worries, but will not actually provide anything for the working class. I'm so glad you said that, because I mean, here's something you said in your substack, that Democrats in the U.S. have failed to offer what should be the obvious alternative, 
a bottom-up economics that invests in the education and the health of the public and the infrastructure connecting them. So first of all, why did the Democratic Party get so captured by the trickle-down narrative, the neoliberal, whatever you want to call it? Why did that take hold so deeply in the Democratic Party? Well, I think you follow the money. I mean, I was in the Clinton administration. I was uh, Secretary of Labor. I could see the money coming in. And uh, whenever I said anything about it, criticized it, worried about it openly, I was told, look, uh, this is the way the game is played. Democrats can't sort of play the game with one hand tied behind their backs. If Republicans are getting all this money, we have to try to get the money as well. Well, the trouble with that logic is that once the Democrats start drinking from the same trough as the Republicans, then the game is over. Now, having said that, let me just make sure that anybody listening understands that the Republican Party is still much more deeply dependent on the wealthy and big corporations than is the Democratic Party. But it's only a matter of degree. It's not a matter of principle. There are many, many principal Democrats who are raising money as much as they can in small donations. But the Democratic Party as a whole is still in the corporate game. Do you think that that view of economics is still in charge of the Democratic Party? Or have you seen some shifting? I wish I could say that I've seen some shifting, Abby. I think President Biden has been very kind of genuine in his overtures to labor and his concerns about the working class. I think that comes from a place in him that is very deep and very authentic. But uh, even the president, even President Biden, is susceptible to the machinations, the power that comes with corporate America. Right. Um, You talk about bottom-up economics. When I talk about bottom-up economics, I'm talking about making your people, including your poor and your working class, the center of your economic program and giving those people two things that they desperately need. One is a, a safety net, including paid family leave and paid sick leave and and all of the other things that we it became very obvious America doesn't have during the pandemic relative to other advanced nations. But the second thing that people need are investments in their opportunities, opportunities to get ahead, the education, job training, uh, health care, which is, you know, how can you possibly be productive and, and do well in a society if your health is compromised? I remember when I was Secretary of Labor, I would go into into grammar schools and high schools in poor areas of this country and and look and see how many young people were squinting, uh, squinting at a blackboard. Mm. And it was obvious to me that they couldn't see. They had never been to an eye doctor. Nobody had been concerned about their health in terms of their their eyes. Well, How do we expect young people to learn? How do we expect young people to actually have a fair chance? The same thing goes with our system of taxation. You know, so many of our schools are dependent on local property taxes in order to finance the schools. And yet, as we segregate by income more and more in this country, those local property taxes really are very small and getting smaller uh, for schools in poor communities. And that means... Just logically, those children have a bigger 
problem, a bigger challenge in getting a good education. You know, I, I keep coming back to a moral analysis, and maybe that's just my, it's a structural thing with me. I kind of can't stop thinking that way. And I get frustrated when I get told that, no, you have to put it in terms of what's the benefit to someone of doing the right thing. But I do think that when we were sold this trickle-down narrative, we were sold a whole bunch of presumptions that came with it, that the value is always something you can measure. It's a material thing, that we're all basically in it on our own, that this is an individualist society, and therefore the well-being of the, the collective doesn't matter, that selfishness is a positive quality. We got sold a, a package of things that replaced what I think was an American tendency toward optimism with a, a real shared cynicism. And it has so much to do with our current political environment. I mean, if you see it that way, the trickle-down narrative could only have ended in this particular economic arrangement we're living in. But I feel like it could only also have ended in this very cynical political environment. Do you think that there's like a kind of a parallel moral degradation that came with the trickle-down narrative, or am I just being ridiculous? Well, you're not being ridiculous. In fact, I, I think you're being uh, exactly correct. You can't separate economics from morality. Uh, you know, it's interesting that in the 18th century, when you had Adam Smith, Adam Smith, the so-called founder of certainly conservative economics, they all go around with their Adam Smith ties, conservative economists. Adam Smith himself, in the 18th century, didn't call himself an economist, called himself a moral philosopher. Now, why did he call himself a moral philosopher? Because he, again and again, in his writings, said that he was trying to seek a good society. What's the meaning of a good society? How do we achieve a good society? And that's where we were coming out of the Second World War, you know, when, when I, I was born in 1946, well, that was the same year that a wonderful movie called It's a Wonderful Life was released. And It's a Wonderful Life, starring Jimmy Stewart, was all about your community, what you gave to your community, or how you had responsibilities to your community and your community uh, had responsibilities back to you. And the villain of that movie, played by Lionel Barrymore, uh, Mr. Potter, uh, was, was selfish. He was all about just getting more and more, acquiring more and more. He was inquisitive and individualistic and selfish. And the moral of that movie was the we is more important than the I. You know, I made a conscious decision in the film I made to to name names. I named Bob Iger because I felt that he was taking home so much money at a time when his workers were doing so poorly that to sort of hide behind politeness rather than call that out seemed to be missing something very important, which was that as an individual person, as one human being on this earth, he actually could change the way things were arranged if he chose to do so as an individual. And so what I'm getting to is, I guess I'm wondering if these individuals in these positions had suddenly woke up one morning having just, you know, experienced the it's a wonderful life thing and decided to do things differently, how much could they change, do you think? I think they could change a great deal. And I don't 
think it's a problem to name names. In fact, I think it's a problem not to name names. We're talking ultimately about individual decisions about moral matters that affect us all. And when you have so much money, so much asset in this country, now in the hands of so few people, uh, you know, we're back to the Gilded Age of the 1880s and 1890s, you have got to name those individuals. Then we call them the robber barons. We singled them out. John D. Rockefeller and William Vanderbilt, who said the public be damned. The way we actually changed America's consciousness about the responsibilities of individuals, of rich individuals, uh, to the country, and why it was important to change the structure of the economy itself was by naming names. Uh, We have to do that again. We're talking about individuals, right? And we were talking about individuals at the very top of these companies at the height of power. But more often than not, we're not those people. And there is a role for individuals to play, especially around the movement to get money out of politics. The money in politics empowering corporations is really the bottom line here. You know, is there a movement afoot? How big is it? What is it doing? How do we help it? Yes, I call it the pro-democracy movement. How do we get big money out of politics? Even though the Supreme Court has decreed that corporations are people under the First Amendment and corporate donations to politicians should be protected by the First Amendment, there is still the possibility of, first of all, providing matching funds through government to small donors. That is, uh, somebody donates $100 to a candidate, the government would provide a matching $100. That would encourage candidates to rely on small donors because of the government, essentially a government subsidy. And those small donors can be very effective. Another very important reform uh, is to get rid of dark money so that there is transparency, so we know where every donation is coming from. A lot of big corporations don't want people to know that they are supporting uh, these candidates, particular candidates, and so that they hide behind these so-called social welfare organizations that don't have to disclose their donors. Well, that can be changed by legislation. It should be changed by legislation. The Supreme Court has done nothing that makes that difficult to do. In fact, There have been bills before the Senate and before the House to do both of the things that I just talked about. So who who are the organizations that are working on that? If somebody wanted to go and be helpful, where would they go? One organization I've been, in fact, I was chairman of the board until quite recently, is is called Common Cause. I think it's a terrific organization. Uh, Another group is the Brennan Center. It's done terrific work in terms of helping people understand what's at stake and what needs to be done. Yeah. It seems like if a corporation wants to be treated as a person, it should have as many responsibilities as it has rights, right? Well, I believe that a corporation is a person when Texas executes a corporation. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great note to end it on. But, Abby, thank you for inviting me. Oh, thank you so much. You've been a pleasure to talk to. What a delight. You can subscribe to Robert Reich's newsletter on Substack, and you can find him, I'm not kidding, on nearly every social media platform out there if you look up R.B. Reich on Linktree. 
If you want to see The American Dream and other fairy tales, it's available on Amazon and iTunes and Vudu. And we're hosting screenings across the country. So to find out if there's a screening near you or to host a screening, please visit AmericanDreamDoc.com. That's AmericanDreamDoc.com. If you happen to be in the Berkeley area on February 3rd, I'll be at the UC Berkeley Labor Center where Robert Reich is an advisory board member. We'll do a screening of the American Dream and other fairy tales, and then we will follow it up with a Q&A featuring me and some student labor organizers. See you there! You've been listening to All Ears with me, Abigail Disney. Our supervising producer is Alexis Pancrazi. Jake Frankenfield is our associate producer. Our engineer is Florence Barrow-Adams. Bob Golden composed our theme song. And our executive producer is Kathleen Hughes. For Fork Office, the All Ears team is Angie Wang, Dominique Bouchard, Phil Nuxall, Cody Young, and Kathy Camacho. Thoughts, questions, feedback? You can reach us at abigaildisney.com slash allears. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and spread the word. Thanks for listening.